Welcome to the Gold Standard here from the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. And I'm Michael Gallagher with Nashville Hockey Now. You can follow me on Twitter at MGSports underscore. And I'm Emma Lingen from the Hockey Writers. You can follow me at Emma underscore Lingen. Twitter.com. Of course, we are brought to you by Jasper. So we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, lots of stuff to do today on the show. Some metrics, season-long metrics to look at the influence and the job that Andrew Burnett has done so far to date relative to where this hockey team was last year. That'll be a big part of the conversation a little bit later on in the show. We, we it is This was supposed to be, guys, a season-defining stretch for the Nashville Predators. They have this incredibly difficult and long road trip following two home games where they played absolutely terrible hockey. They get then five home games before the the, the uh, trade deadline, and this was supposed to be season-defining, but how can you define the season when all you are getting is outlier performances from the team? So we'll get into that. Uh, obviously, some call-ups that I, I know that both of you guys are fired up about. Uh, we will discuss uh, a concert in Las Vegas because I feel like we're contractually obligated to do all of that. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff to do. Uh, some injuries. Uh, there was an injury for Milwaukee, but they are still undefeated. I think I don't think they've lost. When's the, did they lose? Like in like October, November. When's the last time this team lost? Like December. I think it was Another like year? December, December twenty seventh or thirty first, twenty twenty three. It wasn't twenty twenty four. So Milwaukee continues to. I mean, to one roll. second I'll have the actual date. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so otherwise, go to Jasper's. Check them out. Of course, free parking. Uh, great. December thirty first against Rockford. There you go. So it was twenty twenty three. There you have it. And um, again, Jasper's free game room. Great grab and go market. Great menu. Uh, I had a business lunch over there last week, so make sure you check out Jasper's. Go over there on West End. Proud sponsor of your Nashville Predators. All right, should we start with Igor Afanasiev? Should we start there? Because that's obviously the top story in everyone's life right now if you're a Predators fan. The guy who doesn't play hockey. Why not? <laughs> I, I don't know why he's not playing hockey. <laughs> I guess you want me to take the lead on this one? You, since you I'm tell a, me why he's not playing. I'm the driver playing. of the Igor Afanasiev fan club bus. What was the text thread? Who sent the text thread? Hashtag free Igor. Emma started it and then I put the hashtag started, right. free Igor. Hey, it worked a couple of years ago when I was at the Nashville Post when uh, Megan Sealing was co-hosting the It's All Your Fault podcast. She started the free Ely Tolvanen hashtag and then it worked. And a couple of games later, he was playing regularly and ultimately didn't work because he got traded. But hey, that's hashtag. a lot of ease in a hashtag. Yeah. It was it was very confusing trying to because you look at it and you're like, did, did she misspell something or what was going on? But same thing, free Igor, yeah. Um, I, I it just confuses me, and I, I would be saying this whether it was Fedor Svechkov or Zachary Larue or literally anybody from Milwaukee that's called up. It makes no sense to me when you would call up somebody, especially someone like Afanasiev, who had nine goals and twenty four points in his last eighteen games. He's playing a, a top six role for the Admirals, who by the way have won seventeen in a row. You bring someone up and you pull him from an environment where he's thriving and the team he's playing for is thriving and you call him up to the NHL and you scratch him for three straight games. And it's it's got to really chap him too, sitting there watching Kiefer Sherwood and Michael McCarron produce nothing while he's just sitting on the bench. Sure, he's getting paid a little bit more with an NHL paycheck, but it, just, it makes no sense to me why you call up one of your top prospects who was literally having a career year in Milwaukee playing 20 minutes a game to play zero minutes a game and sit him on the bench especially when you have guys like McCarron and Sherwood that are doing nothing. That was that was my only point from from the tweet I put out last night. And I, I know I'm feeding into the the guy on Reddit who I think he, he said, <laughs> and I quote, the, the hard-on that I have for Afanasia could cut glass. Um, 
yes, I'm fe- I'm feeding we, into that. But we are in mixed company, Michael. Come on. But, but uh, yeah, I. <laughs> Either way, if it, even if it was Jankowski, Jankowski was having a better season than Afanasyev. At least he was playing. Sure, they sent him down and called him back up 24 hours later, but it just makes no sense why you would take someone who was really playing really well and settling into a groove and call him up. And you're, you're hurting his confidence at this point. You're just you're sitting him there, and he's not sure he's practicing, I guess, but he's not really playing. He's not contributing any meaningful minutes. It just I don't. It doesn't make sense to me. He's in the gulag, Emma, and weird shit happens in the above the Arctic Circle in the gulags these days. I don't know if anyone's paying attention to the news. Well, look, I'm not disagreeing with anything that was said about Afanasyev. However, I I would draw the line at McCarran and Sherwood are producing nothing. They each had an assist on Cole Smith's goal. I actually thought it was McCarran's goal, to be honest with you, against Vegas on Tuesday. So I won't say they're doing nothing. Uh, but I, I don't think basically I'm saying this is a, an Afanasyev issue. I don't think we should bring in mm. others expand. Well, that, I mean, that was it. I just, I don't, I don't, when I say it's an Afanasyev issue, I mean, it shouldn't be, well, why are Sherwood and McCarran playing? And he's not, I just think, I don't know. I, I, agree, I think that's though. how you have to look at it though, because if he's not playing, then you look at the guys in the roster that are playing ahead of him. And it, it, if, if he's not playing, it's either he's doing something wrong, which he's played one game. So I don't think the one game he played was terribly atrocious. Yeah. Well, the game was, but he wasn't, <laughs> yeah. um, I think the one game yeah. he played and happened to be the worst one ever, but it, it's uh, basically, it's all your fault, Igor. It's all your you fault. Go. Which, of course, you can listen to everywhere you get your podcast with Jeremy K. Gover. And this week, Emma Lingen. So, <laughs> it's all come full circle. Why is Igor <laughs> Avanasiev? I will agree in theory that if you're going to call up a player who's hot, uh, it doesn't make much sense to bench him. Especially, I think, especially after a terrible game where it's not his fault, obviously. But, like, you want to give a guy, get get him back out there. Get, get clear the head and get get the good reps back out there. That, that's literally my point. Like, why would you call him up just to sit him down when he can be? If if your reasoning for sending Tomasino down is playing twenty minutes in the AHL is better than playing ten minutes in the NHL, then surely that same reasoning applies to calling someone up who's already playing twenty minutes in the AHL and getting zero minutes in the NHL. Am, am I wrong? I don't think so, but I think we've reached our maximum amount of time that we can talk about Igor Afanasyev on the show. As as, as I just uh, want to put it out there that I did not bring up talking about him, Braden. <laughs> you were you were the one who said we got to start off with Igor, and you, I don't know. Turn the mic loose to me, so you're <laughs> you're stoking the fires here. Uh, I will say, and I think Emma, Emma and Mike, you both will back me up on this. I, look, I think the hockey world is better with more people like Igor in it. How about that? Absolutely, he, he's he's a really nice kid. Just talk to the guy. He he's really nice. Yeah, it's okay to root for hockey players as individuals because of how they are off the ice. The, the sports doesn't have to be personal. Okay. A lot has happened <laughs> since the last time we all got together. And the the 9-2 loss to Dallas on Thursday at home, following the J- New Jersey game in which we all questioned the effort, one of the worst possible things you can do for a hockey team, especially a young and developing and rebuilding hockey team. So probably the one of the worst weeks or at least two game stretches of the entire season. They had given up 17 goals in their first three games back from the break. Then they go on the road and they beat St. Louis. They begin the road trip with five goals, including an empty netter 
against a rival in the division and a team they're basically, I think they're at time of taping tied for the final wild card spot in the playoffs. Then they go on the road and they beat Vegas and they go up 4 1 and completely, like, I don't know, secondary scoring, backup goaltender, like one of the better games they've played all season. In fact, they played one of their best games all season against Vegas the last time they played in Vegas, and the result was very different, a 4-1 loss, I believe. But but we saw how well they played and sort of the talent gap. Well, this time they played the same, but they ended up with a, with a huge win. So we're talking about two of the better performances of the season following two of the worst performances of the season. How is it that we can figure out what this team is if this is a season-defining stretch of the year, which we all, I assume, agree kind of is? How can we decide? How can we define who they are if they are giving us what I would call ends of the extreme outlier performances? Nine goals allowed, beating Vegas on the road handily. Like these are not regular, routine, consistent performances from this team. How how is it that we can define the season if all we are getting are these giant swings in either direction? I think that's almost exactly the point. <laughs> if you look at at this stretch, it's. This whole season, we've been trying to figure out what this team is. And, okay, we're at the defining moment. And, oh, surprise, surprise, we still don't know what this team is. I think, you know, it speaks to we, like, if you look at New Jersey and Dallas, for example, those games, you see what this team's biggest shortcomings are. But then you look at St. Louis and Vegas on the road, and you see the potential of what this team can be. Uh, maybe that's not who they are fully because we've only seen it for two games, but you know, we we're seeing potential. And I think that inconsistency, like you said, of two different ends of the extreme, that is what, what this stretch is telling us right now is that this is still a very inconsistent hockey team. Yeah. I don't really think you can define what this team is because they're I, th I think it's best when they're undefined because if you try to put a label on them they go out of their way to prove you wrong basically you call them good they'll play bad you call them bad they'll play good and it, it reminds me of where we were last year when Braden when you kept pushing the deadline back for when you would absolutely sell or absolutely buy where it's like well we need a little bit more time to judge them we need a little bit more time you just don't know here we are two weeks out from the trade deadline and technically they're tied with the blues for the last wild card spot. So technically they are a playoff team, but we all, I think agree they shouldn't be, or they shouldn't be acting as if they are a playoff team and they should not be buyers at the trade deadline. And if it doesn't feel like anything, I mean, obviously the, the play on the ice and the, the regime change and all that, like that stuff has changed, but they're, they're, right on the bubble of being a playoff team at the trade deadline and everyone thinks they should be selling and they might actually consider buying. I feel like it, we're back where we were last year. It, I don't really feel like much has changed since this point last year. So at time of taping, St. Louis and Nashville, both 60 points, Minnesota two back. And then of course, uh, Seattle and Calgary three black. So five teams for the final wild card spot, all within three points of each other. And essentially, the schedules have now evened out. They're all within one game of each other as well. The Preds have played one more than St. Louis and Seattle, at, at again, at time of taping. but And they're better at, away from home. We've talked about this all year. They're 15-10-2 on the road. They are under 500 at home. I, can't make any sense of that. I do agree with you, Emma, that the the, the youth and sort of the, 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 the transitional nature of the organization currently is what leads to the inconsistencies and the ups and downs and the roller coaster. And I think we said this at the beginning of the year, Mike, like, hey, y'all be be prepared for a bunch of this stuff. We just didn't expect it to happen from like 
a Thursday to a Tuesday, <laughs> like as fast as this was. Let me ask you guys about Vegas specifically. What what I mean, Evangelista Glass, Novak, and Cole Smith. That's like a dream secondary scoring scenario for this team. Uh, Colton Sissons gets to within one goal of his career high against St. Louis. Uh, Luke Shen, I believe, scored a goal <laughs> of all people. Um, what is it about the matchup with Vegas that you guys see that, that they play sort of th- their best version of themselves in that type of matchup? What is it about that matchup that you guys think allows this team to play that way? I, I don't really know. I mean, if you, if you look at just like going from like looking at the box score, I think the first thing that stands out is I know an 85 save percentage doesn't look that great for Kevin Lincoln, but he saved 23 to 26 shots. At least it wasn't a four or five goal game. Like they've had a lot of those in the last couple of weeks. And then you look at the the Preds defenseman. Luke Shen was the only one with a minus rating. Everyone else pretty much played a, a fairly well-rounded game. And I think that was the main thing that, that stuck out to me a little bit more so than we've been seeing the last, I would say, month is there wasn't as many defensive mishaps against Vegas as there were a lot of the other games. I mean, put on the tape from the Dallas game, the whole the whole entire game was a defensive mishap. So if you if you watch the Vegas game, like it, it just seemed like they played more of a, a tighter game. Um, they were more sound defensively. They didn't really make a lot of uh, stupid penalties and a lot of take a lot of like dumb decisions and stuff like that. And I think it was just I feel like the Vegas game was kind of what Andrew Burnett was trying to say. That's how he expects the players to play. And it took them a nine two loss and a, a bad loss to to New Jersey two days before. It took them a, a bumpy road to get there, but they finally got there. And I think the Vegas game that needs to be the blueprint of how he wants the team to perform going forward. Yeah, and I would say on the offensive side, I mean, the Preds against Vegas were actually in front of the net. They were being aggressive. They were hounding pucks, all the things that Brunette wants them to do. I mean, Vegas was on the second half of a back-to-back, which I only bring up because so was New Jersey, and they still managed to beat them. So I think, you know, the the Preds kind of took advantage of Vegas there and definitely out-muscled them, outworked them, which was the complete 180 from what we saw against New Jersey. And so there is a lot to be said. You know, if you look at just straight-up roster construction and record obviously Vegas is a better team (laughs) Vegas is a better team than Nashville is but like Brunette said after the New Jersey game or all the players said it after the New Jersey game like you can get outplayed and but you can't get outworked there's just no excuse for that and so I think we finally saw that like something lit a fire under them against Vegas and and we actually saw them really putting in the effort yeah, I think that that work ethic really showed when you look at some of like some of the underlying metrics. Like they outshot the outshot Vegas 40 to 26. They outhit them 40 to 30. They won the faceoff battle 32 to 26. Like those are the things you expect. If Nashville's successful, those are like three key areas you expect them to to be winning is shots, hits, and faceoffs. Cause that's primarily when they have success, they usually win at least two or all three of those uh, areas. And I feel like that's kind of what Andrew Burnett was hitting hinting at after the the Dallas game, like they did nothing right across the board. Dallas just had had its way with them. So I think that's kind of what he was trying to hint at. And that's why we saw the very difficult practice that they had on Friday. That's why like all the stuff that he was talking about with, it just seemed like they weren't really focused on the game because traditionally like when, when they are focused on the game, like all those numbers point in their favor usually. Well, and I think styles make fights. It's very clear that they are comfortable in a game with Vegas, which I do not want to, 
I don't want that to turn into a permission structure to allow Preds fans to be like, well, if they're the eight seed and they're playing Vegas, they got a chance. Like, uh, anything's possible. Just get in. Like, no, it's not a permission structure for that. Now, what's interesting about this playoff race, as they are tied currently, I, Calgary sort of is is this really big linchpin in almost all of this stuff that could happen. Um, big article by Wyshynski on ESPN about, like, some people think this could be a crazy trade deadline. Some people think nothing's going to happen, as is to be expected. But a couple of weeks out, Calgary feels like a very important piece in all of this. And if they can make some deals that get rid of some pieces, that eliminates one of the teams that is competing for that playoff spot in theory. So, I, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm going to make the case here in a second for for some overwhelming maybe current um, conclusions that we can draw about Andrew Burnett. Um, but I still don't think I'm anywhere close to buy a piece, compete for a playoff spot, unless it is a piece that you think is like a, I don't know, perhaps a 22-year-old goal scorer who's under contract for a couple of years. Michael? Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're going to be a buyer, I think realistically the only kind of players that make sense. And I know Trevor Zegers is a lightning rod. People either like him or they don't like him, and you can make a case either way. And I would, I, I, I see both sides, and I agree with both sides. Like, yeah, he probably rubs with a lot of people the wrong way, and there are people that have very strong opinions on him. But how often do twenty-two-year-old franchise centermen? come available that are under contract for two more years after this, who already have multiple 20 goals, 60 point seasons become available. Like Anaheim was very clearly showing during the off season that they really were, they, they, they slow played the contract extension. I'm not saying they were trying to get rid of him, but I do believe they're trying to shop him during the off season, which is why it took them forever. They got Troy Terry's contract done immediately, but it took them months to get Zegers under contract. And someone who is that talented, it's the same, it's the same argument with PK Subban. Like, you have to take the personality and all the things that make him a quote unquote distraction. If you want the supremely talented offensive player on the ice. And that's just kind of how things are right now. So I feel like out, outside of going after Zegers, like I said, who's very young in his early twenties, who already has shown that he can produce points in the NHL outside of going and getting someone like that. And by the way, he's under contract for two more years. So that, that plays a role yeah. in this too. Like I think trots wants young players under team control for multiple seasons outside of going and getting someone like that. It doesn't really make sense for them to be buyers. Emma, do you consider trading for a player of that type, young and with term? Is that acting like a playoff team? No, I, I think I, I kind of tend to take a more 10,000 foot view of this, where if you're going to be a buyer at the trade deadline, that means you've got to be like right there like right there on the cusp of not only just making the playoffs, but actually having success in the playoffs. And the Predators are not right there. Like, they, I mean, they could make it. Like you said, they're they're tied for the second wildcard spot. But it's not like, oh, if we just get this one guy, then that's going to change the trajectory of the rest of the season. Like, there are certain teams that that would make sense to do. Now, for a player like you're talking about, Again, it's kind of a unicorn, right? With getting a guy, a 22-year-old who is under contract for a couple of years. I don't know. For me, I don't know if I make a deadline deal with Anaheim for that because Anaheim's not competing for the playoffs either. So like they shouldn't be as desperate. That's maybe an off-season trade that I would explore. But I, I mean, for me, making any big splashy moves at the trade deadline 
is i mean it, splashy moves meaning like splashy uh acquisitions acquisitions yeah <laughs> during the during the trade deadline that is acting like a playoff team and and you know i i don't know what will happen but i i have a feeling that's not i we're not going to see agree. that this year but um yeah that would be the biggest red flag to me it, would be if, if they did something like that it's all about orders orders of operation if the trade helps you next year and it's that's the number one thing you start with analyzing then I'm kind of okay with whatever happens after that. Meaning, oh, maybe it helps you in the short term. Maybe it gets rid of. Maybe it's draft picks you're trading. I, you know, like you could give away stuff that's not assets. You could also do both. You could go acquire a piece with term, but at the same time, trade Carrier away, trade Soros away. Like you could still do multiple things here that appear. Maybe one move appears to be like you're trying to make a playoff spot, but really you're you're trying to get better next year. And at the same time. Because again, in that same piece, the the like the second name mentioned in that piece was Alexander Carrier on by Wyshynski. So I don't like you can kind of do all things at the same time and still always be looking at next year or the year after. Not even just next year. I would say you got to look at this as like a five year plan. Like yeah. what what is going to make the team better for the next five years? And like you mentioned, draft picks. God knows the Preds have enough draft picks to go around. But, you know, I, I think that any move made at the trade deadline, trade deadline, or even in the offseason is going to be very calculated looking at this as sort of a five-year process because Barry Trotz even said that yep. over the summer when he took over. Like this is not, you know, this oversimplifies it, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I, I agree on, it probably makes more sense to make your roster altering moves in the offseason than does at the trade deadline but and i will say with zegris I, I agree it would make more sense to do that trade specifically in the offseason however he's available now teams are looking for help now so he might not be available in the offseason that's the only and i'm not saying like it has to be trevor zegris or you don't trade for anybody at all i'm just saying if you want a player like that there's now not, there's not many sense. of them though yeah it would make more sense to go after him now because he is available now and he might not be there. Like there might be a playoff team that's like, hey, we need Trevor Zegers. Let's go get him. But I, I do think to Emma's point, it does make more sense to wait until the offseason to make some of these trades. And like I know Alex Carrier is in high demand. If there's anyone on this roster that probably gets traded at the deadline, it's probably going to be him just because there's so many teams that could use him and he's valuable to a playoff contender. And also, if you if you get rid of Carrier, then that opens the door for Stastny or Delgazo or whoever in Milwaukee. Like those moves make sense. You're not just making one move you're making a move with another move behind it that kind of that follows up, follows through and stuff like that. Like there's a difference between trading for Trevor Zegers and trading for Mitch Marner. If you're trading for Mitch Marner, that kind of signals you're trying to win this year. Yeah, if you're trading for, for Trevor Zegers, <laughs> then he's young enough and he's under team control for two, two additional yeah, years. Yeah. Like that can, that can set you up for a couple of years after that too. So I think that's the lens of what you look through the trade deadline as has a lot to do with it. That, that's all I meant. Like, if this if this move makes you better next year and the year after, and maybe you sign a, an additional contract to your point, Emma, about a five year plan, and all of a sudden you get five years of production out of a centerman that's probably the best centerman you maybe have ever had from a talent perspective at that position, and and he's already kind of a proven commodity. It's almost like, well, if anything good happens this year, it's house money at that point. It's just sort of like, well, like we're not like that's not the reason you do it, and I think that that is. To me, as long as it's a longer term, and again, to your point, those are unicorns that don't exist, which is also why I'd be more interested in going to get them now because there's just not a lot of those players available. So if you've got the opportunity, go get them now. 
Um, and then again, anything that might happen this year is house money at that point. If it does help, if he does help you get into the playoffs, it's house money, but it cannot be the way it cannot be the reason you do something. It, the, the reason you do something is to make the team better long term. I think we've I think we've all kind of established that. We all agree. Stop acting like a playoff team. Um I think that's I think that's pretty fair and clear with what we're doing here. Uh okay. So again, keep an eye on Calgary. I think Calgary is going to be a team that sort of dictates a lot of this stuff and could fall out of this race real fast if they start making a bunch of moves. Could also affect the way UC Saros's value is is held. There's already been some goaltender moves around the NHL, so keep an eye on Calgary uh moving forward there. Okay. Go to Jaspers, of course. Go sign up for good journalism and and good reporting from both of you guys, Nashville Hockey Now and the Hockey Writers, because you will not see articles about uh, spankings, the proverbial spanking by the mom and dad on a team that misbehaved in front of its crowd. All right, so quickly here on the concert thing. this I, I don't think this is a huge story. I think you guys kind of agree with me on this, and I'm forcing you to talk about it. <laughs> The, I have to say, though, for the, for the record, that was one hell of a segue there, Braden. I was wondering where you were going to go with that, but well, well done. As, as, as parents, I'm the only one with kids on the show. We do not spank, but I certainly I certainly was uh, treated that way when I was a kid and I misbehaved. This was a proverbial spanking by the front office after giving up nine goals. Um, here's the thing. Like, I, I think the story itself is the story and that this is like PR by the front office and we can debate whether or not it was leaked on purpose from inside of the organization or, uh, you know, leaked by maybe an agent who's like, Oh, my player is unhappy that he doesn't get to go to the U2 concert. Or, like there's a million different ways this could have been leaked. But I, I do think Barry Trotz took the opportunity to say the thing out loud, which probably endeared himself to his fans. And I give somebody Barry doesn't normally have a problem with, with words and honesty <laughs> on a, to be honest. But I think he took the opportunity to say the thing, which is this isn't good enough. So you don't get to go have your part, your birthday party. <laughs> like you, you, you don't get to go to the concert, which nobody would have cared if they would have actually gone. Like nobody actually cares. But I think it is about optics. And so it's like an opportunity that Barry Trotz took to improve the optics of the team. And so I think that's ultimate. like the story is kind of the story in and of itself, not what actually happened. Does that make any sense at all? No, I I think you're right on the money because, I mean, look, after the Stars loss, Brunette kind of left things up in the air when he was like, yeah, there's not a lot of guys focused on the game. We're too focused on vacation and then just left. And then, like, everyone's like, what the hell does he mean by this? What do you mean vacation? Like, and then, of course, the next day we asked him a practice about it. And he was just like, yeah, he didn't really answer. He's like, well, no one's really focused on winning games because Andrew Burnett is still trying to get into the playoffs as a head coach. That's what he should be doing. And nine to and two will I, piss anybody off. Let's just be honest. Yeah. And I think Barry Trotz saw this as an opportunity because literally Bleacher Report, all the big name publications are talking about this. Like, what did Andrew Burnett mean? Are the Predators players on notice? All that, like, it became this huge story. Barry Trotz took the moment to turn it into, to use a, put a good PR spin on it and be like, look, this is unacceptable. This was a punishment for our players. Our fans deserve better. If you're going to spend your money on tickets to our game, we're going to give you a better product. And ultimately, I think it ended up, like, I agree that not going to the U2 concert is a non-story, but I think what came out of it was good because I think it Barry Trotz helped use it to paint himself and Andrew Burnett in a better light because fans want to hear that they're pissed off that they lost 9-2. Fans want to hear that they're not happy. Fans want to hear that they share in their frustration, and this was a good way to let them know, like, hey, we're in the boat with you. This is unacceptable. 
Yeah, I think it's a it it just sends a message to the fans. Yes, it sends a message to the players too, but that's not really the story. Like you said, it's yeah. more. I mean, these are millionaires these these players and they if they want to go to a U2 concert they can go to a U2 concert and they're and like, they're they, off on Sunday either way right it's, no one said so, that like they they didn't have like they weren't under house arrest right like they could have gone well, to the they concert they did no they did come back so they were supposed to go from oh, that's right. St. Yeah. Louis to Vegas and they ended up coming back home to practice but still it's like this for them it's not i mean it's not as much of a once in a lifetime thing as it would be for one of us, for example. <laughs> I, but, I have friends who like flew out to go to U2 <laughs> at the Sphere. They don't make NHL money. I promise you. <laughs> I I will just say like, I think it, it is a little funny when I first heard that, you know, you talking about spanking and disciplining. I, the first thing I <laughs> thought when I read that was like, oh, dad's angry. Dad's upset. Now we don't get to go to the concert. And so Nash Nash piddled in the house again. Got (laughs) it. So, yeah, I just had flashbacks to my childhood when like I would talk back to my parents and I would get TV taken away for a week or something. So I I think, yeah, it sends more of a message, like you said, to the fans and to the, you know, it sends more of an external message like, hey, we're aware that our effort is not even just giving up nine goals. I mean, that's bad for sure, but you know, it's not even just the Dallas game, but even the New Jersey game, the, the effort was not there. And I think it sends a message that like, Hey, you're not going to be able to phone it in anymore, or this team isn't going to be able to just phone it in and not face consequences for it. Cause again, I don't think like to your point, like the concert is not the story. It's the fact that, that it became a story is the story. Like, the, the fact that the team was quote unquote punished again, like these guys can all go to any concert they want to really at any time. And so it's, it's, it's that the predators front office viewed it as a chance to make a statement to their fan base and to the team. It, it's the, it's the PR communications. That's the story, not the concert. I, I do think, and it did cost them extra money, right? There are tickets that they purchased that now that the, now that I assume are on the secondary market somewhere or got used on the secondary market, I should say, it does cost extra to fly an additional private flight, right? Like there's more private flight there. Teams don't own private jets, by the way. Most billionaires don't own private jets. They like have a share of them and then it costs a ton of money to, to fly them. So it did cost the team a bunch of extra time and money to do what they did, but also not as much as like it would cost the three of us to to like fly to Vegas and get hotels and buy tickets. And you know what I mean? Like NHL teams don't pay market value <laughs> for that shit. <laughs> Yeah, I also do think, too, and I know we talked about Dallas and the New Jersey game. I also think the Arizona game played into it as well, because Burnett even said he was like Arizona kind of handed us that that they were ahead two goals. We shouldn't have been able to come back and then win in overtime, too. Like, I think it, I think it was he the his press conference before the break. He said, we need this break because our guys are tired. They need rest. It's a good time for them to go and recharge and come back and really attack the the, the final 30 games or whatever come back and then you put forth the effort you do for two and a half periods against Arizona, get a win that I guess he doesn't think they should, they were worthy of getting. And then the, the effort against New Jersey and Dallas, I think it was a message, not just over an overreaction to the Dallas game, but I think it was all three games since they came back from the break. Like, Hey, you were supposed to come back rejuvenated and you're playing worse than you were before the break. Like what gives? Yeah. And they keep playing well on the road. I mean, look, San Jose and Anaheim are not good hockey teams. So if they play like they did against Vegas in those two games, and even if they get beat by the Kings, to win four out of five on the road while you're entering a five-game home stretch right before the trade deadline, 
they're going to mess around and turn a bunch of fans into like playoff scoreboard watchers if they don't if they don't figure their figure their stuff out. Um, all right. The so last time the last time they had more regular season home losses than wins was the 2000 2001 season. There you go. Um, okay, so I've got some really int- I, I think is interesting statistics we've got for you guys out there that I think is going to paint a picture of exactly what Andrew Burnett has accomplished so far in about two thirds of a season. Again, still plenty of time here left to make a playoff run. Go to Jasper's, of course, everybody. Um, they will, uh, you look, parking is free. The food is great. The grab and go market, the game room. Uh, I am not the only person, by the way, that will go sit there with their family and let the game room watch the kids. Uh, much like how the Preds behaved on Thursday night, Jasper's, you could just send them into the game room and, and even if they misbehave, Jasper's will watch them for you. Is that legally allowed? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, go to Jasper's, everybody. Okay, so, but well, real fast. Before we get into uh, the the metrics here and the analytics on Andrew Burnett compared to John Hines, is you, like, what's the number that you would, are you guys U2 fans in general? Would you pay $400, $200, $300 for a ticket to a concert? And if not, who? Who are you paying that kind of money to see at the Sphere? Because I have heard that the sphere uh, from like a visual standpoint is just a, like a bizarre and insane experience. I like maybe three U2 songs, so I would not pay more than $5 to go see them. I'm sorry. $5. Yeah. Holy shit. That's insulting to Bono. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Would- I don't, I don't know that there's really any, I don't know. I think about the most, so the most I ever spent on a concert for myself, and I'm not a huge like concert goer, really. The most I ever spent was when I went to Vegas, ironically, uh, when Lady Gaga had her residency in Vegas and I I paid for that. And I was, I was in the pit and I was like right there. And I, I love Lady Gaga. We have the same, we have the same tattoo. Like I'm a big Lady Gaga fan. And Yeah, uh, I think so, that's I think that's fair. I think all that is fair. Also, but yeah. it sounds like you paid for the best seat too. It's not just that you paid to get in or whatever, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. What's the ball? What was the ballpark on that? How that? How much that put you back? Uh, I'm gonna plead the fifth on that one. Okay. Suffice it to say, it's the most I've ever spent on a concert. Most but well expensive, worth it though. Most expensive ticket I've ever purchased. I did not know I was spending that amount of money. Uh, I I spent two hundred forty dollars on a. Uh, a Billy Strings Ryman ticket, which ironically I'll be seeing Billy Strings this weekend at Bridgestone Arena. Um, but it's because my buddy was like, Yeah, I'm gonna get four for us after market. And we were all just like, Okay. Assuming that like the $50 ticket might be like uh, like a hundred, maybe, you know. And then he and then like months later, he's like, Yeah, y'all gonna pay me? And we were like, All right, what do we owe you? And he's like, $250 a person. And we were like, We did not approve that before you purchased the tickets. <laughs> But you know you got to be a good friend and and pay for it. So was was Lady Gaga in the pit more than two hundred and forty dollars? It was yes. Okay. <laughs> I would pay way more than five. Like I don't love you two. I like them. They're fine. I'd pay way more than five dollars, Michael. That is insulting to one like four decades of rock and roll success for for you two. Although Bono to, is to a, each their own. I, I'm not a big that's fan. That's Sorry. Fair. I think it, the most it, I've ever paid for a concert ticket was I think I paid. I think it was like 175 to see Eric Church at Bridgestone Arena years ago. That's a big ticket at Bridgestone. That's expensive. Um, it, we had really good seats, and it was one of those things where, like, my best friend was in town. His girlfriend, who rarely ever comes to town, was also in town. Like, the stars align where everyone was in town. It's just like, well, we have to go. Like, it's 
we all love Eric Church and stuff. And it's like, I'm willing to spend a little bit more money on a concert like that. If it's kind of like a special occasion where you get to hang out with people you don't normally see on a regular basis. So I agree with that. I will also, in my defense, back to Lady Gaga, because I still feel like I need to defend. You do not have to defend yourself at all. Well, it's Lady will... freaking Gaga, dude, in Vegas, in the pit. You do not have to defend that. Well, yeah. And it's a Vegas residency, so it's a much smaller venue. So mm-hmm. like it's much more intimate. And so it's not like I was buying a ticket to a show in a massive arena. Although, of course, she did end up doing a stadium tour like two years later. But that's beside the point. <laughs> it was also my first time ever going to Vegas. And I went uh... with one of my best friends and like I'm not even a gambler, really. Like I went to Vegas for Lady Gaga, so that I, for me that was worth it. We are going to be as predictable in our music taste as possible here, because <laughs> mine, because again, I would I would spend three hundred on Lady Gaga in Vegas, and way before one seventy on Eric Church. <laughs> in my person, but that's my person. Like you said, Michael, that's our perfect our, our personal taste. G- give me Zeppelin with Bonzo's kid filling in for. For uh, John Bonham on drums, um, where they actually get the band back together with the drummer's son, that's I would probably fly anywhere. I might fly anywhere in the world to go see that. I, that, I don't know if there's a like they they can't they, they won't ever get back together because they're all such highfalutin assholes and they can't get along. But Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, but uh, if that if Zeppelin ever got back together, like New York, Chicago, Vegas, whatever, I would probably pay for the hotel and the flight and the ticket for sure. So that's again. As predictable as the middle-aged dad's tastes could possibly be. I think favorite artist, regardless of where, I probably would not spend more than a thousand dollars on a trip, like for hotel travel and for the for the tickets. That's probably where I would max out. We will get back to Andrew Burnett's uh, offensive possession time in just a second. But uh, my wife and I used to. This is what we used to do: is we'd plan a trip around like a concert, but like the trip was the trip. So we would go to Denver. Hey, it's like this is before our kids. We'd be going to Denver and it's like, oh, there's a Rockies baseball game. Jack White's playing at Red Rocks and we're going to go to like Boulder and go see, you know, the mountains or whatever. So like we would we would plan a trip someplace and it would incorporate a concert, but it wouldn't be because of the concert. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know. We'd go to like Tippy Tina's in the Garden District in New Orleans to go watch a show and find new music or whatever. So we just call that being financially responsible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. OK, uh, so here's some numbers on. Uh, ultimately, I think I, I have a thesis here. And I'm not sure it's all that outlandish or crazy or or whatever, but basically every single metric that you can measure a hockey team by in, in broad strokes, I'm not talking about getting into like incredibly granular on the rush, off the rush, you know, all the different grant. I'm just telling like, if you were to take eight to 10 metrics that gauges how good a hockey team is, and you compare Andrew Burnett's, and this does not include the win over Vegas. These numbers do not include the win over Vegas. So this is prior to a very productive 5-3 victory over Vegas, which I assume will actually make these numbers even better. Essentially, every single major metric that you can evaluate a hockey team on, from John Hines to Andrew Burnett, has gotten better. This is John Hines' last season last year, and Andrew Burnett this year. And so bear with me, there's a lot of numbers here. Goals four, two seven two under Hines, three zero under Burnett. Expected goals four, two six nine under Hines, three point one nine under Burnett. Scoring chances four, twenty one point seven under Hines, twenty four point six under Burnett. Offensive time 
offensive zone possession time, which is like physically the puck is on your stick in the offensive zone. Not like you've dumped it in and it's in the zone. Like you actually have possession. Six minutes and 33 seconds under John Hines. Seven minutes and 11 seconds under Andrew Brunette. True shot percentage, 4.8% under Hines. 5% under Andrew Brunette. Offen- Those are just offensive numbers, obviously. Offensively, there is not a major metric to evaluate this team that says that the John Hines version was better. So to me, that says Andrew Burnett is doing his job. Because also keep in mind, there is no Nino Niederreiter, Mikhail Granlund, Tanner Janot, Ryan Johansson, or Matt Duchesne as well. So not only are, are they less talented, they are far more productive on offense. Again, at this stage of the season, before the Vegas game, every single category says they are better on offense than John Hines' team. I think that's a pretty definitive statement about Andrew Burnett's work so far as the head coach. I don't have the exact numbers, but I think the only category that John Hines' teams were better in was face-off win percentage. Because Andrew Burnett's face-off win percentage is below 50, and I think Hines was at like 53%. But other than that, I mean, face-off win percentage is a good stat. It's not going to win you a lot of games if you're decidedly better. So, But I, to your point, I do think, and I think that's that's where the disconnect is between all of the fans and their anger right now. And yes, there are some on Twitter that are calling for Andrew Burnett to be fired this early, which is nonsense. But I think that's, I think that's the issue is if you put these numbers in front of them and show them like, Hey, the wins and the losses may not be exactly what you want, but the numbers show that offensively, like there is progress and this team is better. I think that it makes more sense, excuse me, it makes more sense to them, but just watching based off of how the games have played out and nine to two losses to Dallas and four to two losses to New Jersey, it makes, it makes the bad seem a lot worse because they don't have this kind of context in front of them when they're trying to decide how angry they should be with the performance of the team. And I will say having uh, worked for the team internally uh, during John Hines last season, uh, when, you know, you really can only portray the positive about what a team's doing. I'll say, especially Towards that second half of the season, I was trotting out that face-off win percentage quite a bit and trying to get quite a quite a bit of mileage out of it. That is that and goaltending. And it was like, hey, we're really good in the face-off circle. And remember when UC Saros was a Vesna finalist last year? Like that was that was it. So I think like those things, I mean, UC Saros has also not had his best season under Brunette, but I think, you know. For the direction that Barry Trotz wanted to take this team, which was that he wanted to be faster, he wanted to be more offensive. Um, you know, I, I think that Andrew Brunette is absolutely the right person for the job. I also think, though, there, and this is not a surprise and not, you know, necessarily a, a bad thing or an unexpected thing, but I think there have been some growing pains uh, with Brunette taking over as far as, you know, and, and no one, like I said, going back to what I said before, five-year plan, like it's not, it would be foolish to expect Brunette or anyone to come in year one and completely turn an entire franchise around, especially with the roster that he has. And that's, you know, a point that I've made. Um, I made it, <laughs> I made this point actually on Twitter during the Dallas game and discovered how many people thought I still worked for the team and were shocked that I said this. (laughs) 
Um, and I said, no, no, I would have been drop kicked out of 501 Broadway if I said wow. this while I worked for the team. But my issue with Brunette is that he, I think, needs to like, I think two things can be true. You know, I, I think he's the right guy for the job as opposed to John Hines. But I also think his roster management could use some work because it it goes back to the conversation that we were having a couple weeks ago talking about, you know, he doesn't have the horses he needs to run the race that he wants to run. I think that there are times that and, and you know, it's gotten we're starting to see it a little bit more. I mean, we certainly saw it in the Vegas game with all the depth scoring from the younger guys. I think I said last night, the Preds are partying like it's March, 2023. Like it was Luke Evangelista, Cody Glass, Tommy Novak. It was like, whoa, there that was a blast from the past. And like, we hadn't seen that from those guys. And I'm not saying it's entirely due to Burnett giving them fewer opportunities and less playing time, but it's certainly... I would imagine is part of it because if you look at last year, you had to give those guys opportunities because there was no one else. Everyone had either been traded or injured. And so I think, you know, there, there's certainly, there's certainly some room to grow for brunette, but back to your, your original point for this team becoming what trots wants it to be. I agree that brunette's the right guy for the job. And for those of you who are listening right now, who are screaming at your cell phone or your wherever you're listening to podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. Well, what about the defense? Valid. Totally valid. Expected <laughs> expected goals against for John Hines. 3.16 expected goals against Andrew Burnett. 2.99. Better. Scoring chances against John Hines. 24.5. Scoring chances against Burnett. 23.4. Better. Offensive zone possession time against seven minutes and eight seconds for John Hines, six minutes and 16 seconds. That's almost a full minute less possession for the opponent in the defensive zone for the Nashville Predators. Better on defense. The only two numbers that are worse this year in these broad based sort of big general categories goals against 288 under Hines, 325. Under Brunette. That's a lot. You want to know why? UC Soros. <laughs> Goals saved above average per 60. So bear with me here on this one. John Hines, 0 0.36. That's essentially telling you that UC Soros is saving four tenths of a goal every game above expected. Every single game, he was saving almost half a goal. This year, negative 0 0.11. This is a category that Soros, we've documented this. Soros has been. Top five in the NHL almost every year. He's been a full-time goaltender in goals saved above average. You can get that number in a lot of different places. I normally grab it from hockey reference. Generally, he's 20 to 25 to, to 30 goals saved above average for a season. He is negative this year, and that cannot be all predicated on the defense and the system because, as I've told you, less scoring chances, less offensive zone time possession for the for the opposing team, they are better in every major category under Burnett than they are under John Hines, with the exception of UC Soros. And that goes back to his usage. That goes back to his, I, I don't know, bad season. Some injuries maybe on defense. We can point to a lot of things, but like largely it has been UC Soros. And they are still, without Matias Ekholm, better 
on defense than they were last year. So they are better than than the team last year in almost every major way. They're in a playoff hunt, and they don't have secondary scoring. Their goaltender's not as good, and they're not nearly as talented as last year. I don't know how I can spin this any more positively than that. I'll say, too, like even just not looking at the numbers. I mean, I guess it's partly has to do with numbers, but I just felt like last year it was like watching the same game over and over and over. Like how many final scores did we have last year that were like two to one, three to two, (laughs) three to one? Like it, you know, it was obviously the, the defense, as we said, was, I mean, not according to the numbers you just said, it wasn't better under John Hines, but definitely just the the mindset of the team under Hines was much more defensive than offensive. At least now, you know, with the exception of maybe the last couple games before St. Louis and Vegas, it it they're at least like somewhat more exciting to watch. You know, even if they're not winning, they're taking shots, they're fast, and they're you know they're moving the puck and. Uh, again, there's exceptions on both sides of that, but I think that, you know, it, yes, you can definitely tell the difference. Yeah. I think too, also like some other things to consider too, um, like Braden said, they're, they're averaging less defensive zone time. They're also averaging less defensive zone time on the penalty kill. They're also, I mean, you talk about Saros and just how he's struggled to adjust, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, NHL edge some of their advanced metrics like the Preds are skating two miles more per game this year under Andrew Burnett than they were last year (laughs) they're averaging 45.5 miles skated per game this year and 43.4 last year the speed burst they have they're averaging 16 and a half speed bursts of 20 miles per hour or more last year's 13.7 so they're skating faster they're skating more like Andrew Burnett has said this several times this is a new information his system is taxing on everybody because it requires a lot of movement, a lot of space, a lot of shot creation, a lot of speed. It's a relentless grinding style. And I think we were all worried at the beginning of the season, like, oh, how are the defensemen going to adjust? How are the forwards going to adjust? Yeah, all the, it affects all those guys too, but it also, it's relentless and it's wearing on UC Saros too. And I think that's the main difference I've noticed between Hines and Burnett is Hines' system was probably a little bit more friendly to defensemen and to goaltending, whereas Brunette's demands a little bit more, and it's it's a, it's a lot more taxing on both of those positions. And Well, and I would say, and I think, Emma, you said this, I, I believe you said this with Gover on It's All Your Fault, go check it out, um, is I think it's just a combination of all things. I don't think it's as much the system, but I think you cannot say for three years, not you guys specifically or me, but like as a collection, we have talked about for three years, you cannot overplay UC Soros and they keep overplaying him. And eventually there's going to be an impact of that. Eventually some guys just have a down year, certainly adjusting to a new system or new defense could be a part of that. Not having Matthias Ekholm in front of you certainly is a part of that as well. Uh, so I think it's a combination of everything that, that UC Soros is, it's just not his time. It's just not his year. And that happens. But I don't I think it's I think you have to attach it to a lot of different things and not just say, well, the defense isn't as good and they haven't been as good in front of him. I think th- the numbers kind of say that they, they've been slightly better. Um, so I, I don't I, I think it's just one of those things where there's not one reason, but I sure as heck I, I you cannot say for three years. Uh, man, I'm really worried about UC Saros's work rate. I'm really worried about it. I'm really worried about it for three straight years. And then when his numbers decline in year four, not attribute some of that to the work rate, right? 
And that's why, because I'm contractually obligated, I'm just going to throw this in. This is why I would view trading sorrows at the deadline to be an <laughs> overreaction to this year. Because I think that, like you said, well, and like I said earlier in the week with Gover, I think that there are so many different things at play here. And yes, every goalie, every player ever is, unless maybe Connor McDavid is bound to have a down year or an off year. And with all of the changes that have been thrown at UC Saros this year from, you know, the, the change in the system, the coach, the GM, just everything. And then you add on top of that, the, the insane workload that he's had over the last, Last three years and really unnecessarily so, especially when Kevin Lincoln is your backup. I, I, to me, that is a team that, that, that shows that the team is not doing right by sorrows or hasn't done right by sorrows. And I think right now, I think you just kind of need to let everything sort of even out, let everything sort of level. It's just like we were talking about, we've seen extreme it's just in the last week alone. And so I, when you have an asset like that, that's as good as he is, uh, I wouldn't want to overreact to his numbers this year, which are, of course, they're worse than what they were before. Right. But I still think it would be an overreaction to trade him. And that's that's my two cents on it. I, I agree. If they were to trade him because of his play this year, I would agree. That's stupid. I would trade him because of his play the previous three years. I would trade him because he is worth that much and he's going to ask for $8 million a year and you've got a star coming up in the pipeline and we've seen goaltenders come out of nowhere and carry teams to cups. You don't necessarily have to have one of the best ones. Like to me, it's it's reacting to the rebuild. Like I think two things can be true. Like I agree with you. Don't trade him because of his numbers this year. Don't react to that. Don't let that be the, the driving force of the decision. I would trade him because I think he's your best player. <laughs> that that's that, That's not a... I don't mean Roman Yossi and Philip Forsberg. I mean, like, that's an actually tradable app asset, right? Like, what's your best trade chip? It's UC Soros. Are you in the middle of a rebuild? Yes. Are you Should you be acting like a playoff team? No. What do teams that are in rebuilds not acting like playoff teams do? They trade their best tr trade asset to get as many pieces to continue the rebuild as possible. And I think he's the best one. I, to your point, I think you trade him off the first three years and hope that his price hasn't gone go down. I guess that's that's my point on on Soros. But I, th I think if you trade him, it has nothing to do with his play on the ice. I think it's because yeah, you don't want to pay him eight million dollars a year or more. Like I've heard that he wants Connor Hellebuck money. I don't know if that means he wants exactly what he wants or in the ballpark, but we're we're we all think it's going to be around eight million to eight and a half million a year somewhere in there. Barry Which Trotman. I think is fair. I think it's even fair because Hellebuck is the only guy who yeah. has started more Agreed. games than Saros has. Since since Saros, I think, stepped into a somewhat regular starting role in 2019 where he was starting 34, 35 games, he and Hellebuck are like number one and two in pretty much every major goal, every major goaltending statistical category. So it is it is fair. And that's honestly, if you want to keep an elite goalie, that's the, that's the market price for one. Saros is well within his right to ask for that. But I think in Barry Trotz's uh, introductory that's why, press that's why you trade him. <laughs> yeah, I think in his introductory press conference, he he alluded to the days of handing out big money deals like that are over. And then he he made that comment, and then he traded Ryan Johansson and bought out Matthew Shane. So I don't I don't know if Barry Trotz wants to give out that kind of money. I, I think him is right. Like Saros deserves it. He, his play dictates that too. And that's another part of this too. Everyone's acting like he's having a terrible year. If you look at his numbers, 
they're not much worse than some of the years that Pecorine had. And I'm not saying like Pecorine was terrible, but everyone talks about how bad UC Saros is this year. One, he's having statistically, he's having an average season, I guess. But if he's so bad, then why is there so much trade demand for him? You have no, he's you not have Carolina, bad. you have New Jersey, you have all these teams that are willing to give you at least their, one of their top prospects in a draft pick. It's going to take a lot more yeah. than that. But you have all these teams lining up for Saros. I don't think it has any, if you trade him, it has nothing to do with his on-ice performance and it has everything to do with the contract that you're going to have to pay yeah. him. In we, we we discussed this a lot last week, so we don't need to kind of belabor the point. But I think, uh, I mean, ultimately, when you have a guy getting close to 30 and he's going to be double the val- double the price tag and you've got an elite player you just spent a huge asset on and is dominating in Milwaukee, it's just sort of natural. It's just un- unfortunate. Maybe, maybe nobody wants to to hear it, but like it's just sort of a natural situation that that takes place when you're sort of. If this team was second place in the division, we're not having this conversation. <laughs> it's it. They're going to resign him and pay him big dollars and trade Askarov for a piece that helps you win today. Like there's a different strategy there. You have to be shrewd. You have to do things that sometimes are very shrewd and calculating and cynical, like paying. Ryan Johansson, $4 million to play somewhere else. It's just, it's just, it is, it's business sometimes. So here's the other thing I want to add. Yeah, go ahead, Emma. I was just going to say, this is a major tangent, so we don't have to get into it. But going back to Johansson and Duchesne, it bothered me a lot last year how the general consensus was to put Duchesne and Johansson in the same category when talking about players that needed to be gone or you know the and I still think the fact that Trotz got rid of both of them and then we saw what Duchesne did with Dallas against Nashville last week go read about it on the hockey writers because I talked to him about it (laughs) I think you know you look at a guy like Duchesne at least Duchesne was producing until he got hurt Johanston wasn't and it, it was ridiculous that he was making as much money as he was so I think that was that was fair. But I, I think the point is, you know, to bring it back to the original point, Trotz doesn't want to give out those massive contracts. I think basically he was saying Philip Forsberg, that was the last one. <laughs> like that was the last yeah. one that we're going to see. And I don't know if that applies to goaltending or not. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, it, it's certainly valid. But I think that there's people are just so used to goaltending carrying this team. And, you know, that's why people are maybe overreacting and saying, oh, Soros is horrible this year. It's like, well, because he's not carrying this team on his back like he has been the last couple of years. I would still like to see a little bit more, you know, of course, this is asking for too much, but like you want the stars to all align. And it's like, okay, if you're going to get rid of sorrows, I'd like to be seeing some more offensive production first. But, you know, the the timing isn't always going to line yep. up on those things. Yep. Um, yeah, you get a better draft pick if you trade Soros right now. So, I mean, I, I, like we could spin this a million ways. I do find your, uh, and I do think the Johansson and Duchesne conversation because they got paid basically the same amount to play a similar position at about the same time. I think they are lumped together and they were jettisoned at the same time. They're lumped together, but their journeys not only to get here, but what they did when they were here are wildly different. Just and what they've done after wild, Dush- wildly different stories. I mean, Johansson is the best center in the history of the franchise. Duchesne has a single season scoring record, but like, it's just it, like, they're totally different situations and personalities and productions and, 
how they got here is different. Like, it, you know, Duchesne was thirst trapping his way across the internet to get here. And David Poyle was like begging him to come the whole time. And it's just, it's totally different stories. So we can, we can spend an entire episode in the off season breaking all that down. Um, here's a couple other quick notes on Burnett, just because there's too many names to list that are like having career years because the bar was, I don't want to say so low, but like they never really had regular play. Cole Smith, Michael McCarron, Tommy Novak's not playing as well as last year in terms of production. Again, just just goals and assists here producing. But Evangelista is probably going to have a career high. I don't think Carey is on pace to break his rookie record, but maybe he is. There's a lot of those guys. Um, we've certainly talked a lot about some of the guys that have regressed, you know, whether it's Tomasino, whether it's Cody Glass, whatever. But like if you look at the oldest dudes on the team, and again, ask for one of the most productive on ice lines, goals on ice in all of the NHL is the top line for the Nashville Predators, right? It, it, o- O'Reilly, Nyquist, and Forsberg producing as many goals as any line in the NHL. Uh, Nyquist is on pace for his second best points per game season of his career. I believe he's 112. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly is scored is, is on pace for his second highest per game goal scoring season, also like 112 years old. Uh, Philip Forsberg's on pace for his second highest goal scoring and second highest point total per game in his career. He's a little less than 112 years old. Uh, Roman Yossi is on pace for his second all-time per game assist ratio and his third all-time points scoring ratio. All four of those guys are producing at at an alarming clip. Uh, Again, Andrew Brunette and this team have gotten all four of those veterans who have produced a lot in their years and a lot in their careers in a lot other situations that were probably more talented and better. And they're producing among the best seasons of their careers. So it's not just the young guys. It's not just the metrics. It's not offense and defense. It's also the veterans who have accomplished a lot in their careers as well that are performing at the top of their game. So I think that's part of the perception with Burnett too, is like you expect Forsberg and Yossi to be among your leading scorers. You expect Ryan O'Reilly to produce like a top center and and they are, but I think it's, it's, it's a combination of their talent meshed with Brunette coaching them and playing, putting them in the right position. I, I would argue like you can see like through Colton Sissons, through Cole Smith, like you could see Brunette's coaching working with those guys. Cause I don't think anyone expected seven goals and nearly 20 points out of Cole Smith given how he produced the couple seasons before. I don't think anyone Emma expected, did. except for Emma. She's the one person that probably <laughs> did. I don't think anyone else expected Colton Sissons to be what no. fourth on the team in goal scoring. Like his, and, that, and I think that's the perception that fans are struggling with right now. You see Parson and Tomasino get sent back to the AHL and you see the guys that you expect to produce producing. And it's like, well, Andrew Burnett's not really doing his job. He is doing his job. It's just it doesn't look like what a lot of people thought it would look like at this point. And I think that's the that's the big disconnect between is Andrew Burnett a good coach or not? Because it's it's hard to see some of these things unless you actually go and you put in research and you go and you do the things that we do pre- prepping for the show, looking for some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I think Colton Sisson's one goal away from his career high, four points away from his career high uh, in total. I, I, I think, you know, couldn't happen. I, I think it's cool to see a guy like that get put into this type of system and have this kind of year at this stage of his career. I think it's cool. I think it's a good story. Um, and I, again, I think, I, look, we're not gushing about this team being elite or that Andrew Burnett is going to win a cup. Like, that's not what we're doing. But if you just evaluate last year's hockey team and this year's hockey team, they are far less talented, but more productive in almost every major category. So I don't, that is just my broad general con, like thesis of this conversation Yes, with 20 plus games more to go, we have no idea what it's going to look like, but 
I don't think you can argue the numbers at this point. He has been a significantly better coach with less talent than what this team had last year. And that should be a positive for fans to, to hang their hat on because ideally all these young players, if they stop getting injured or they stop getting scratched, will develop and be better. And the draft picks continue to develop and get better. And they continue to make shrewd offseason moves that the roster gets better because the, it doesn't seem like it's the coach's problem. It seems like it's the roster's problem currently. If that I think if there's one thing to take away from this right now, I know like, yes, the, the, some of the games they've lost and the number of losses and all that, like there's, there's a lot of things for fans to be complaining about, but I think if there's one silver lining, I guess it's that the coaching is working or it, it can be successful. Once the, the prospects develop and you get the right roster in place, yep. I think what Burnett wants to do will be successful. He just has to have the players like we talked about that can go out and execute it. And I think putting forth all these numbers show that he's not actually the team isn't regressing from where they were last year. Like they've actually progressed and they've developed and they've gotten better in a lot of key areas. Who is going to get a Yaroslav Askarov uh, doll? Who's going to get one? Either of you two. I'm I've been trying to hunt one down. I want one of those because I think it's hilarious that they turned that into, I don't know if it's a bobblehead or if it's just like a figurine or whatever, but I, I want one. I don't know how you make a bobblehead on a player lying down on the ground. But wouldn't it be funny though if the the, if net, the goal went like, up and down? The goal went up and down because yes, he's be he's bench pressing it. Yeah, I could say. That but would I, be good. I I think it is just a figurine though. Very cool. It's still I don't awesome. know. I don't know that I'm committed or financially solvent enough to find one on eBay. But I will pay more than five bucks for that. Okay, <laughs> more than a U two concert. You want to? Yes. I don't like the black pads. I wish he had put the uh, the other pads on there. But uh, either way, it is. I guess it is his thing. So I'm pretty uh, sure he's undefeated since going to the, the white switching. Pad. I, yeah, I may, I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he wore those his last four starts of 2023. Now he's wore them all this year, I believe. Uh, Milwaukee 17 consecutive wins, which I believe Michael, you tweeted second longest AHL win streak of all time. Number one, I think, is like yes. 28 games. I don't think they're even yeah. close. to The Norfolk win. Admirals in 2004. Uh, so, a long time ago. Yeah, obviously. 20, 28 straight wins. So Milwaukee's got a long way to go to catch that. But 28. That's not. But one more win, and they solely possess the second longest win streak in the AHL. And they're having a hell of a season, and they have Milwaukee's loaded with prospects. And I think the, yep. the fun thing is, I've advocated for getting an AHL TV subscription. If you do and you watch those games, you're watching future Predators players. So I think it's worth yeah. the investment. And they win all the time, literally every time. Yeah, <laughs> they, they win. Uh, although they did lose uh, one of their better better players, Fedor Svechkov, out four to six weeks. That's a bummer. So, not to end the podcast on a bad note, but uh, that's a bummer there. So keep track of that. But otherwise, yeah, get yourself an AHL TV subscription and cut Bally's out of your life altogether. <laughs> just watch the just watch the minor league team because they never literally never lose. It's never happened in calendar year 2024 it's never happened uh emma what do you got coming up on the hockey writers uh well just this morning i put out a piece on the vegas game and how we finally got a glimpse of the depth scoring that this team has needed uh for really the entire season and you know what needs to happen for that to continue um i've also got a paid subscription piece coming out uh, that I'm sure Michael will be excited about because I did sit down with Igor Afanasyev uh, after he got called up. It was Take actually my money. Yeah, it was right <laughs> after the New Jersey game. Uh, had a great conversation with him because, of course, it's impossible to not have a great conversation with Igor because he's just a great kid. Uh, just kind of talking about 
more the mental side of things. Like obviously his numbers speak for himself. He's had a career year down in Milwaukee before getting called up, but kind of how he approached getting called up midseason this year versus how he approached it last year and, you know, just kind of how he handles everything mentally. So that's what I got coming up. Bono in the edge, one of the world's most popular rock and roll bands, $5 Two AHL Russian prospects. You got Michael's money. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> Mike, uh, Nashville Hockey Now, what's coming up? Yeah, we did a story this morning uh, kind of detailing a little bit about uh, Fedor Svechkov's injury. Um, I'm also working on a story why I believe we'll see uh, Askarov in the NHL sooner than later. Barry Trotz, I think, had a, a Freudian slip on the radio last night, uh, which I thought was interesting. And then I also... Oh, well, chatted- uh, tell everybody what that was. Go ahead. Don't bury that. It- an hour into the show. <laughs> you you got to go read the story to find out. Oh, okay. All right. So, th- Point. It's called selling the story, Braden. Well, you, you said the quote was on the radio, right? It was on the radio. You can go listen to it or you can read my story. Okay. Right. I'm not going to do the legwork for you. God. unbelievable. Um, okay. And then I'm also working on a story. I spoke with Cody Glass uh, at Friday practice last week and talked to him about switching to the wing, which Emma and I have both been advocating for and just kind of picked his brain on where he's at. Uh, just kind of being up and down in the lineup and how how he's kind of settling into things and if maybe playing on the wing is something he's looking at long term, um, hoping to have that up in the next day or two. So if you're a Cody Glass fan, we'll have content for you. There you have it. Uh, obviously, again, Kings, Sharks, and Ducks over the course of the weekend. That'll wrap up the road trip and maybe a, se- a season-defining moment of time. They then play five consecutive games at home, leading directly up until the day before the trade deadline so it's here folks the 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 most important part of the season and the future of the franchise all could be hanging in the balance of course over over the next couple of weeks so pay for good uh coverage for the nashville predators for nashville hockey now and the hockey writers of course make sure you check out our sister show over there on um the scene in the post with it's all your fault from jeremy k gover and uh go to jaspers of course go swing by free parking great food great place to watch preds games go check it out or Ask them to get an AHL TV subscription at Jaspers. I don't know. See if they'll foot the bill for that. So you can go watch Russian prospects dominate. Uh, Otherwise, have a great one, everybody. For Emma and Michael, I am Braden. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys next week. This has been the Gold Standard here on the 440 Sports Network.